Welcome to the Food Issues Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Revelant, and I'm a journalist, healthcare copywriter, and a mom of two. In every episode, we talk about the challenges around feeding kids and give you practical and realistic solutions that will inspire and empower you to raise healthy eaters. Hi, friends. Welcome to season seven of the podcast. If this is your first time listening or you've been a listener for a while, I'm so grateful to have you on this journey. I have an exciting season planned and a ton of great new guests sharing everything you need to know about raising healthy eaters. So when dinner time rolls around in my house and my kids ask the question that all kids ask, what's for dinner? I sort of shudder because I know what they're going to say. It'll either be, we're having that again, or, oh, I hate that. I know you know what I'm talking about. The what's for dinner question, though, it's just the beginning. Then it's all about stressing about whether your kids are going to eat their vegetables, eat what you made for dinner, or eat anything at all. And so many times we fall into this trap of trying to encourage or even coerce our kids to eat. And, you know, maybe we say things like, just take a bite or try it. You might like it or, but you ate it last week. And so no matter what we say, it either doesn't work or it backfires and we all leave the table feeling totally discouraged. We really haven't had all the tools that we need to change the dynamics at the family dinner table so that we're not so frustrated and our kids aren't so frustrated. That's Stephanie Myers, a registered dietitian and nutritionist, founder of Families Eating Well and the author of End the Mealtime Meltdown. Stephanie says there is hope at the dinner table, but the goal isn't necessarily to get your kids to eat. She walks us through her table talk approach and teaches us how to nurture what she calls gastronomic intelligence. She also offers up some really simple questions and scripts that you can use with your kids starting today that will not only make you rethink how you talk to your kids about food, but it will help them be more healthy, adventurous, and happy eaters and make mealtimes less stressful for your family. Stephanie is also giving away a copy of her book, and all you have to do is sign up for my free five-day challenge to encourage your kids to try new foods. Just head on over to my website, julierevelant.com, and you can access it there. There's so much easy and really practical information in this episode, and I know you're going to love this interview with Stephanie Myers. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm excited to talk to you. So let's talk about your story. What's your career history and you know, how do you work with clients today? Yes, I have been a registered dietitian and nutritionist for 25 years, um, and I work with clients one-on-one and also in group settings. I have a lot of clients who come to me, uh, you know, parents who want me to sort of help with the challenges they're facing with feeding their children. And I work with the parents, not the kids, because I find that until kids are at the age where they're buying their own food and making their own food, it's really the parents' participation that's so important. Um, So my work, I have my own uh, private practice in Boston, uh, virtual now called Families Eating Well. And I'm also the nutrition manager of an integrative medicine and healthy living program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Great. And before we hit record, we were talking about our children. We both have girls around the same ages. And and so do you do you deal with picky eating at home? And, and if so, and I'm assuming you do, right? Because we all do. How do you deal with it? 
Well, <laughs> that's why I wrote a book on this topic. I think it's kind of, it's kind of comical that people, you know, I was a dietitian for many years before I had kids. And one of my mentors once said to me, just be aware that all the things you think and know to do in your own life with your clients will come into question when you yourself are feeding a little one. And it couldn't have been more true for me. And also the, the, what really sparked my interest in working with parents and families happened when I was teaching a graduate course on uh, nutrition counseling skills and became a parent myself. And that moment where I would spend my day in the classroom with graduate students and interns, training them how to be the best nutrition counselor they possibly could be. And then I would go to the playground or social events or eat with kids or my own kids. And the things that I heard parents saying to their kids, like, you haven't even tried it yet, or you can't say you don't like it if you don't try it, were exactly the kinds of things I was teaching my grad students never to say to clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that, that, was really, that was a really eye-opening moment for me, both personally and professionally. And it definitely planted the seeds for not only my book, but for my work today with parents and families. Yeah. And do you think that the things that we say to our kids, we're, we're all well-meaning, but do you think it comes from our own childhoods where those were spoken to us? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I coined this term in my book called table talk and table talk in my definition is what we say to kids about their eating while they're eating. And it's in my opinion, and even in my research, really, it's quite unexamined. It, it probably comes from our own past. Um, and, and, I actually don't even claim to have an understanding of all the ways we accumulate uh, table talk, but it's one of the things I think a unique angle to come at the challenges of picky eating or picky eating behavior. And it's a new leverage point parents can access to make really powerful change at their table happen. And so what does the latest research tell us about picky eating and feeding our kids? Yes. So the interesting thing about picky eating as a term is that there's no standard definition. It's very much a subjective experience of a parent's observation of their child's eating behavior. And there's really not a clear association between what parents view as picky eating, and I'm using air quotes, picky eating and childhood growth or long-term eating behaviors. But there is one thing that's really clear in the research, and that is that most of the time, the strategies we use as parents to deal with the issue tend to backfire and tend to be counterproductive to teaching our kids the skills they need to eat well. Let's take an example. So I have a type of table talk. There are eight different types of table talk I outline in my book. And one of them is obligatory table talk. Obligatory table talk, the, the, that's an example of that would be saying to your child, you have to try at least one bite. Be, being forced to try a bite, I understand why parents do it because they think if they don't ask their child to try it or sort of mandate their child to try it, that they might not ever try new foods, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is healthy eating is not just a series of one-off try bites. That's not actually how you build the skill in kids of eating well. And being forced to try something doesn't necessarily lead a kid to like it. In fact, it teaches kids to be less reliant on their internal cues. And for a lot of kids, it just makes them dig in their heels as eaters. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is one of those examples where parents are doing their best, like, just try it. Please just try a bite or just try some. And unfortunately, the end result of that is working against what the parents really want, which is to help their kid learn how to be more exploratory as an eater. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I think we do that with every behavior that we that we desire for our kids, right? Please clean up your room or um whatever the case is, do your chores and we that's the that's the approach we take, but it, it simply doesn't work with feeding kids because they have to like you said kind of um start that for themselves. And so, you know, in 2022, we're two years into the pandemic. And in the beginning, our eating habits totally changed. A lot of people were cooking more and we were gathered around the table more for family meals. But now kind of where are we at and and why does feeding our kids and, and dinner time in particular, why is it all so stressful? Yeah, because we're tired. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the simple answer. I mean, you're absolutely right, Julie, like the, the routines being upended, the changing nature of work, work from home, unimaginable loss, like food security issues. There are so many layers here to the challenges that parents and families face with food. And then there's the timeless piece of it, right? Where kids don't want what you made. You, you've gone through your whole day, right? Managed to get through the day of whatever, you know, working from home or shuttling kids around or just be, being a parent. And then by the time you're sitting down to the meal, you get met with like, ew, we're having that. Like, why do we always have to have that? Mm-hmm. Or whatever it is. But there's this, this um, it, it, quite frankly, it's exhausting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think there's that. And I also think, so my opinion on, it, on this as a nutrition professional, who's like I mentioned earlier, spend my, I spend my time trying to help the next generation of nutrition professionals have the skill set they need to help people make the behavior change they want around food. And so my, the, the intersection between that work is just that as parents, we don't have all the tools we need up, up until now. I think we really haven't had all the tools that we need to change the dynamics at the family dinner table so that we're not so frustrated and our kids aren't so frustrated. Yeah. I think also the, the fact that we've, most of us have returned to normal activities. And so dinner time is almost non-existent. We're running around to sports and activities and whatever. And we've just kind of lost that. And, and then, so then when it does come to dinner time, right, kids, maybe they're pushing back or there was just not that routine that we were used to. Yeah. A friend of mine said that the other day, she's like, oh, well, we've entered the season where you can eat dinner at 3.30 or 8 p.m. <laughs> Those are like the options, right? <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> or in the car, right. Or at the ball yes. fields. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Which is a real challenge. One of many real challenges I think parents face with feeding kids. Yeah. And so what is important to keep in mind as we're trying to raise healthy eaters? Kind of what's the big picture that parents should focus on? Great. Well, of course, my approach is using tools of language and sort of the hidden power of language. And I'd love to teach your listeners some of the phrases from my book right now, because my goal is to have this feel as immediately actionable as possible for people. So the first big theme is to ask more than you tell your kid about their eating. So for example, if your child isn't eating as much as you want them to, or they're sort of just not happy with what's for dinner, the two questions I would encourage people to start with are, what do you notice and tell me about? So actually let's play this out, Julie. Give me a food you think one of your kids would reliably reject. Steak. Honestly, steak. steak, Yeah. Okay. Let's go with steak. So your new approach with table talk would be to say to your child, what do you, when, when they say, I don't like steak or why do we, ha- we just had steak. Do we have to have steak again? Your new language would be, what do you notice about steak? Huh. Or tell me about steak for you. 
without any intention of making them eat it, you're going to get curious. You're going to bring curiosity to the table in as big a way as you can as a parent to hear what they have to say about steak. And let's, then we hear what they have to say about steak. It's chewy, it's rubbery, ew, it smells bad, it's, um, it's gross, uh-huh. right? Following that, you say, what would help it? And these are, le- these are specific scripts that shift how we typically respond to our kids rejecting food that both give our child some sense of autonomy. For, so what would help it? Maybe your kid wants a ketchup or a mustard or who knows what. Sometimes what would help it is something crunchy. I, this, is, this one it was really comical. Just yesterday, one of my clients said they were having uh, chicken off the grill, which their kid doesn't like. And they, they tried their new language. Like, what do you notice about chicken? And, they, and the kid answered, you know, that what they thought about chicken. And that parent said, well, what would help it? And the kid said, crushed up cornflakes. And <laughs> That was the last thing that parent expected to hear, but crushed up cornflakes was a perfectly fine thing to sprinkle on top of chicken. And it was a way that neither of them got stuck in that fruitless negotiation that often happens around, please just try a little, or you can't say you don't like it if you don't try it. That kind of stuff just goes away. Uh-huh. Okay. Love that. Um, so that's one example of how you can change what you say, not to make your kid eat something, but to begin to teach them that they themselves have skills to deal with food displeasure. That's because not liking some sort of food is not unique to childhood. That's an experience we all have at some point. I mean, we all have that even as adults, right? Yeah. But what do you do in that moment? Typically we tend to override what our kid is saying, or we don't even ask them at all. Like what's happening for you with the steak is a really important question. Because your goal then becomes to learn about what your child's direct experience is, and that gives you something to work with. Okay. But say you don't have cornflakes in your house. What do you do? (laughs) Yeah. Well, then you, you ask, if you're asking your kid what would help it and they say nothing, then you can obviously say you don't have to eat it. The problem is that you don't have to eat it is a dead end a lot of the times, right? Yeah. I have a, I mean, I'd say 90% of the clients in my practice come to me and they're like, I've been saying you don't have to eat it for like two years now. And actually legitimately, I just need to get my kid to eat something. Yeah. So you don't have to eat it as a phrase I encourage parents to use if they actually can follow through with it. But here's the thing about you don't have to eat it. It doesn't actually help your child go into their direct experience. What are they noticing about the texture, the smell? the flavor, the story they have about steak? And how can you ask them a question that gets them into that space? Because that's where your child might actually have an idea for what could make it better for them. Yeah, it sounds like it has roots in psychology, right? Like when some when a child's having a meltdown, you ask those open-ended questions about how they're yes. feeling. Yeah. In fact, open-ended questions are one of the three approaches in my method that if parents can move away from the eight types of things they typically say and embrace open-ended questions, which is one of three new pathways you can take. That is exactly the way you can get yourself out of a lot of uh, dinnertime struggles. Awesome. And so what are the phrases that we tend to say and we should be avoiding? (laughs) Okay. So I'll go really quickly through these because here's the thing. When I wrote the book, I, I, as a parent myself, I just feel like there's so many times I feel like I'm doing a terrible job. And I was really reluctant to take what I had gathered in qualitative uh, research 
and frame it in a way that would make people feel worse about themselves as parents. Like no one needs that. And I have no intention of making anyone feel that way. So I just want to name before I say these sort of eight types of table talk in my book that I, or I created this sort of way of thinking about it just to help parents understand the breadth and depth of how we talk to kids about food, not to make them feel guilty or ashamed of what they've been saying all along, because I've been saying these things too, until I started to evaluate them myself. So instructive table talk is when you tell your kid what to do. Try this. You might like it as an example. Corrective table talk is when you tell your kid what they're doing wrong. Enough mac and cheese, you need to eat some vegetables too, is an example. Praise table talk is when you tell them, good job for eating your veggies. And praise table talk, you know, people are like, well, what's wrong with that? How else am I going to get them to eat veggies? But praising your kid or appreciating them, like, thank you for at least trying, thrusts parental approval into the mix of kids, things kids are trying to sort out as eaters. Mm-hmm. Conditional table talk is if then. So if you eat two bites of chicken, you can have more pasta. That unfortunately sets up a really dicey rubric of using food as reward and punishment, both in real time and also later in life. So there's some things you can do to undo that. Obligatory table talk, we already talked about before. That's when you need to try it before you can say you don't like it. Expectant table talk is when you tell your kid what to expect. What I mean by that is, well, this tastes just like X and you like that. So your kid, by telling them they should like it or they should have this experience because you remember that they like it, doesn't motivate them at all to eat better or well. And then the last of the eight categories is called closed-ended questions. And so these usually start with one of six verbs. The verbs are did, do, can, will, have, and are. Did you try the carrots? Do you like the carrots? Can you at least have a bite of the carrots? Will you please just try the carrots? <laughs> and the, ans- the answers to closed-ended questions are almost always yes or no. Right. And unfortunately, that's how we shut things down at the dinner table, by asking closed-ended questions or any of the other types of seven table talk I just identified. I came to these quite honestly through my own <laughs> experience as a parent and through literally hundreds of thousands of submissions of anonymous table talk I gathered over a decade. And then they just sort of like fell into these buckets. It came, became kind of clear to me that we tend to have eight themes around how we talk to kids about eating. And as soon as you read chapter three in my book and you hear those themes, you can close that forever because you're not trying to do it perfectly. There is no such thing as perfect parenting and definitely no such thing as perfect table talk. But there's really simple things you can learn to say instead that can shift you out of that sort of shame and pressure approach when you're trying to help your kid eat well. This is great. This is so practical and sounds so easy to get started right away with. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the fact that you say that conflict at the dinner table is a normal part of parenting. Summer is in full swing and the longer days make it the best time of year to bring your kids in the kitchen and have some fun together. Cooking with your kids is one of the best things you can do to encourage them to try new foods and eat their veggies. But most of us aren't chefs and that's why I love the Kids Cook Real Food e-course. This course was created by a mom of four and former teacher and it's for kids ages two to teen. You'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, printable supply and grocery shopping list, and kid-friendly recipes. 
The course also has a ton of substitutions if your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions. My daughters and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that they made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken this course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. All you have to do to sign up is go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up. Between camp, road trips, and long summer days playing outside, my kids will be all about their snacks. And while snacks like goldfish crackers are quick and easy, they're overly processed and they just don't fill up my kids. Finding snacks with real food ingredients that are also affordable is really important to me. And that's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO and members save an average of $32 on every order. My kids are all about the Lara bars and the Go Raw cinnamon snacking seeds. Thrive Market also has essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products like Truce, one of my favorite cleaners. They also have clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. All right, Stephanie. So you say that conflict at the dinner table is a normal part of parenting and I guess something we need to accept, but that's really difficult. So can you, can you kind of tease this apart and help us through it? Absolutely. And I think the reason for this is that eating, taking care of yourself eating well is an inside job, right? So kids need to establish some autonomy in this sense, and they're working through an inner process. So challenges are going to come up when that happens, because what you might want for them as a parent to eat so much, so many certain green vegetables, or maybe not as much open air quotes, junk, close air quotes. Um, what, what happens to a child as they're learning to develop skills of eating is that parents feel pressured for it to be a certain way and there's going to be some, you know, some head-to-head conflict that automatically emerges out of that. I think for almost everyone, at least that's my experience so far. Every parent I've talked to, even the ones who, you know, are in healthcare, are registered dietitians, nutritionists, have, have trained their whole life in this sort of as a career path, run into a situation where what they hope for their kid as an eater isn't what's exactly what's happening at the table. And so you talked about the table talk method. So now is this your own method that you came up with and, and what should parents know? What are the benefits? Yes. So the table talk method is what I call it. Um, and, and it is my own approach. Really it's pairing mindful eating practices with mindful communication where you're bringing to the table, like I mentioned before, new words, new phrases but not to make your kid eat differently, to help them nurture something inside what I call gastronomic intelligence, which is the inner wisdom that we all possess as eaters. Now, I love that you asked what the benefits are because that is what sort of what drives me and what my passion really is, is for parents to understand how with their interaction with kids around food 
can be something simple to change that can have tremendous benefits. So if I were to name the benefits for parents, I would say it's pretty straightforward. Using how to use the table talk method gives you a consistent way to communicate with your kid around food, regardless of their food whims, right? Because sometimes your kid likes tuna one day and not the next. So if you can get a consistent pattern of communication, a consistent words that you use, it's less stressful for you. It's a simpler way to handle food resistance and negotiations. The other thing about, there's two other things about it that I think are benefits for parents. The table talk method works as your kid grows up. It doesn't just work. There's a lot of really great ideas out there, right? About how to feed kids in the toddler age when they're on, when they don't like what they're, when they're quote unquote picky eating or when they're in early elementary school. We mean, we've all done this, right? We're cutting food vegetables into cute shapes and we're putting it with foods they like. And those are great ideas until your kid gets nine, 10, 11, 12 and can get their food anyway. Like, so everyone, I believe parents, grandparents, caretakers, whoever's eating with kids, we need tools that are going to keep working with over the years as our kids grow up. So that's also what I really thought a lot about when I um, developed this approach. And then the last thing, the thing that parents told me actually, when I was working with parents is that they finally felt like they had words. They could say words to their kids that honestly reflected what they really genuinely wanted their kids to know as eaters. And I'll give you an example about that, of that. A lot of parents um, feel like when their kids, this, this comes right out of work I do with parents that have slightly older kids, but their kids that feel like they're overeating, like they're going to uh, um, an event and their kid, their kid's the one who's the foodie and they feel like their kid just is eating, you know, way too much, way too many potato chips or way too many bagels. And they don't know how to handle that situation. And they're telling their kid like, okay, like cool it on the chips or you, you know, that's enough on that. And rather than get into the shame pattern, that's not how they want their kid to feel about eating today or ever. Right. Right. They learn a new way to say, like they learn to say to their child, like what's helping you feel full. They learn how to ask a question. That's not feeling as though it's putting their kid down or doubting them, but they learn language that helps their child believe in their own ability with food. And that's how all of us want to feel as eaters. So those are the benefits for parents. I think the benefits for kids are that they develop uh, the skills of healthy eating, like how to know when they're hungry, how to know when they're full without being told. What would satisfy them in the moment? How much food do you need to take and eat? And how to be kind to yourself as an eater? Those are the skills that come about with better table talk. Um, I think kids also learn how to tap into their own genuine interest in exploring new foods and they have a stronger relational bond with their parent at the dinner table, which I think, you know, hopefully feels good for everyone. Stephanie, what are some examples of specific words or scripts that we can use with our kids? Yes. Great question. Um, one of the things I teach in the book is how to use adjectives in table talk. This is something you can start doing as a parent today. And what I mean by that is, let's say your kid didn't eat very much for dinner, but they said they were full, they were done, right? This, this I feel like happens to everyone. Then 10 minutes later, they come back to you and they want a snack. So here is some examples of how using adjectives as a part of your table talk can be helpful. So let's say your kids has just circled back shortly after dinner and they want something, they want a snack. They're saying to you, I'm still hungry, I want a snack. 
Your job as a parent is to, if, if, if you're going to give them a snack, let's just say, and you obviously as a parent have the right to decide whether the kitchen is closed, which is what you would say if you weren't going to serve a snack, the kitchen is closed. We'll eat again in the morning. So that's for the parents that are like, nope, we're done. And the parents who are going to give their kid, let's say a banana, right? You wouldn't say you can have a banana. You would say we have soft and sweet or crunchy and dry. I'm just, I'm using adjectives to describe the foods that would be available. And you as the parent will have in your mind that soft and sweet's a banana and crunchy and dry is toast. I'm just making up a food that's crunchy and dry. My point here is that you're going to respond to your child's request for a snack with adjectives. So we have soft and sweet or crunchy and dry. What works for you right now? And they might say, you know, they might not want to know what the food is, but actually the more you practice this, your kid's going to stop and think for a second or, or go inward to consult their gastronomic intelligence and say, soft and sweet. This gets you out of the dilemma of you saying you can have a banana and your kid says, but I don't want a banana. Uh-huh. I don't. Okay. You're avoiding that whole fight because if soft and sweet is what's available, it doesn't only have to be a banana. Maybe it's a mango, maybe it's strawberries, maybe who knows what it might be. It doesn't matter about the food so much as you're teaching your child to turn inward and sense what they need or want in that moment. Wow. This, I feel like this approach turns everything we've ever thought about feeding our kids on its head. So I, you, you mentioned the term gastronomic intelligence. And when I was reading it in your book, I thought intuitive eating, but no, right? Completely different. Completely different. And I, I'm real. I'm a big fan of intuitive eating. I love intuitive eating. I have a ton of respect for the dietitians who initially, and so pre, for listeners who are intuitive eaters and have already committed to that and understand the sort of 10 principles and the way of practicing intuitive eating, that is phenomenal. You do not need to change a thing. The difference though, between intuitive eating and gastronomic intelligence is that intuitive eating is something you do, something you practice, principles you put into action. Gastronomic intelligence is something you are born with. It is your inner wisdom as an eater, your inner okayness, your sense of self-worth. It's the place you can go to, to understand what you need in a moment. It's essentially gastronomic intelligence is, is what you do, how you do intuitive eating. Uh-huh. And you can grow it in your kid. And also, by the way, when your kid's freaking out about food, gastronomic intelligence is the thing you want to aim for with your table talk because it's the thing that's going to get you out of the pickle you're in. Yeah, that's amazing. And so overall, the table talk approach, what should parents keep in mind when following it? Are there best practices? Yes. The best practices are to start with three key phrases. What do you notice? Tell me about, and it seems like. These are the first, when I meet a client for the first time, I say, here's what we're going to do. I have one client, she's so funny. She sent me a picture of the quotes that she wrote on her hand, which I thought was hysterical. <laughs> and, and I want to also be really clear. When you begin to transform your table talk, you're going to l- memorize a few key phrases. But once you get rolling, you don't need to memorize any lines. You are going to have within you the ability to do this without memorizing a formula. I mean, the way I present it in the book is very individualized. I take a reader on a journey of like, What do you usually say? You write that down. Here's what you could try saying instead. You practice that for a while and then things start to click and you find yourself in a moment with your kid when they're saying like, I hate tofu. 
I and you say instead of just try a little, you need to just take a few bites or you can spit it out if you don't like it. You don't say any of that. You say it sounds like there's trouble with the tofu. What are you what's happening for you with the tofu and what would help it? You learn to say new things that get you connected with your kid in their moment of displeasure and get them curious and then the whole thing starts to shift and there's a lot less frustration for everyone. Amazing. Well, Stephanie, this has been so wonderful, so helpful and practical. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Well, thank you so much, Julie. It's been such a pleasure for me. My book is called End the Mealtime Meltdown. Um, It is available wherever books are sold. My website is familieseatingwell.com and I'm on Instagram at tabletalkcoach. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you, Julie. I had so much fun talking to Stephanie and her approach is so simple and it really gives kids the skills they need to be healthier, more adventurous and happier at the dinner table. Be sure to pick up a copy of her book End the Mealtime Meltdown, which I've linked to in the show notes. Thank you so much for tuning into the Food Issues Podcast. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com where you can leave me a voicemail or send me a message and let me know about a new topic or guest you'd like to hear from. And be sure to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I'll see you next week.